to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. All right, so to kick things off today, I want some interaction from you all. Um, So I love movies that have twist endings, but I know that not everyone feels the same way. So by a round of applause, how many of you also love movies that have a crazy twist at the end that you didn't see coming that ultimately changes the whole movie? All right. Now, how many of you aren't about that life? Like, that's not your thing. You don't want the twist ending. You don't want the cliffhanger. You don't want the what the heck just happened moment. Okay. That's brave of you to admit that. Uh, Like I said, I love movies with twist endings. In high school, I was obsessed with Usual usual Suspects, Fight Club, Sixth Sense, Mento. Um, Recently, it's movies like Inception or Knives Out or even the Disney movie Coco. If you think about it, it's a major twist at the end. Um, And the reason I love these movies is because I love getting my mind blown. Right? Who is Kaiser Soze? Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. It was a dream, within a dream, within a dream, within a dream. But what I love the most about these types of movies is watching them again from a new perspective. Right? It feels like you're watching a completely new movie. And that's kind of what I want to do today. Today, we're finishing up this sermon series called Lies We Believe. And if you're new to Collective or you've missed the past few Sundays, I want to encourage you to head to Spotify or YouTube. You can search for Collective Church. You can check out the previous messages. But for today, today, let me give you the TLDR for this series. So we all grow up believing lies that we've been told. And most of them are harmless, right? Things like Santa and the Tooth Fairy. That gum will stay in your stomach for seven years after you swallow it, which isn't true. Uh, that you swallow ten spider, or seven spiders in your sleep every single year. You don't actually swallow spiders in your sleep. One lie I've believed for 30-plus years um, is that the Orioles are just a few seasons away from winning the World <laughs> Series. It's never going to happen. Uh, and these are all small lies, and they really don't amount to much. They, the impact on our lives is minimal. Right? Very few of us hold grudges against our parents because they told us that we can't swim for an hour after eating, which is a lie. But there are also lies that we believe that are hurting our faith. Right? They stifle our belief in God and our relationship with Jesus. And so we've spent the last few weeks confronting some of these lies that are negatively impacting our faith and learning the truth from God. And today we're going to look at one of those lies that actually pops up in the Easter story. As you know, today is Easter Sunday. Today is the day that we celebrate Jesus's resurrection. It's the day that we celebrate when hope became real. But instead of looking at this story the way churches usually do, and if you grew up in the church the way you've done every single year, I want to look at this story from a different perspective. I want to talk about a guy named Judas. 
and his role in the Easter story because there is a lie that he believes that I think we struggle with as well. So let me tell you a little bit about Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers. He was one of his disciples. And we don't exactly know how Judas ended up in Jesus' crew, but we read in Matthew 10 in the Bible that Judas was called. Essentially, there was a moment where Jesus saw him and said, hey, you should come and follow me. And Judas dropped everything and did. But the thing that Judas is most known for is his betrayal of Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. On a Wednesday night, just two days before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, this is what happens, starting in Matthew 26, verse 14. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And so Judas initiates the betrayal. And this is really important. He wasn't tricked into this. He was a willing participant. It was his choice to approach some of the religious leaders and ask them, how much is Jesus's life worth to you all? And the answer was 30 pieces of silver. And this was actually symbolic of this low view that they had of Jesus. You see, 30 pieces of silver was the amount in the Old Testament, the pre-Jesus times, of what a slave was worth. Today, it would be between a few hundred and maybe a few thousand dollars. That's it. So it's not a lot. The story continues, and from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, I do think it's important to note that we don't know why Judas did this. We don't know why he would betray Jesus for such a small amount of money. And this is just my assumption, but I don't think it's because he wanted a few extra dollars. Like I said, it wasn't that much money. And Judas has spent three years with Jesus, watching him perform miracles like walking on water and healing people and raising people from the dead. So I don't think he betrays Jesus because he didn't believe that he was the son of God. I think Judas is desperate. Maybe he has a family to take care of. Maybe there's a debt that he owes. Maybe he has a hidden addiction or vice that he needs money for. Maybe he's jealous of Jesus's power and attention. The thing is, we don't really know But whatever brought him to the point of betraying the Son of God for a few coins says to me that he's not really in a good place. The story continues the next night. Today we call this night Maundy Thursday. It's the last night that Jesus is alive. Matthew 26, verse 20 says this. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. Now, this has to be top three most awkward dinners of all time, right? Some of you think that you have family tension at meals. I think this is worse, right? Jesus is there. He's like, hey, so you guys enjoying the wine? Good. Oh, I made it myself. What about the bread? Good. It's really good. Also, one of you will betray me. Jesus also says that the scriptures declared this long ago. You see, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were all predicted before they happened. In fact, this is one of the reasons Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, prophets foretold of a coming Savior, someone who would come and save God's people. There were prophecies about a Messiah coming to rescue God's people through the bloodline of Abraham and David. 
prophecies of a virgin giving birth in Bethlehem, prophecies about this Savior teaching in parables, attracting non-Jewish people, and even being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. All told, there are about 300 prophecies in the Bible, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. Right? All of them came true, which is pretty amazing. I once heard it explained like this, uh, and this comes from a professor of mathematics at Westmont College in California. The odds of just eight, right, eight of the prophecies of Jesus coming true are about one and 10 to the 17th power. That's one and 17 zeros. For context, if you have 10 tickets and you mark one of them, then throw them into the hat and you just throw up the hat, uh, picking the right one without looking is a one in 10 chance. So for eight of the prophecies about Jesus to come true, it's like taking 10 trillion silver dollars and covering the entire state of Texas in a pile that's two feet deep. But before doing that, randomly marking one and then blindfolding someone and saying, you can walk wherever you want in the state of Texas, find the marked coin while blindfolded. Right? What chance would they have of actually finding the coin? Well, it's the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. In another calculation, the professor used 48 prophecies and arrived at the probability of them being fulfilled by one person as the incredible number of 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros, right? You can count them. They're up there. So in the Bible, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus that were all fulfilled by him. And so the odds of that happening are simply incalculable, except that the real author of these prophecies was God. He knew the future. He knew how it was going to play out. So the fulfillment of these prophecies is one of the reasons we have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And for those of you who are skeptical about Jesus in the Bible, I get it. Uh, And we are glad you are here because Collective is definitely a church where you can wrestle with God in faith. But this should give you confidence in what you read in the Bible because it's incredibly unlikely that 35 people who wrote the books of the Bible over the course of a few thousand years were able to fake all of these prophecies. They weren't passing notes to each other. They weren't actually all alive at the same time. They didn't live in the same parts of the known world at that time. They weren't a bunch of friends collaborating on a project. Think about it like this. If I asked you and 34 of your friends to make 300 predictions that had to come true in the next 2,000-ish years, how many do you think you would get right? Now, what if I told you that all of those predictions had to be about the same person? Right? It's impossible for us to do that, but not for God. And so the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus gives us confidence that what we are reading is true. And that's a very good thing because of how the rest of this story plays out. So let's keep reading. And so Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, asked him, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. She's like, yep, it's you. Now, I did a lot of dumb things in college, Uh, but not the dumb things a lot of you did, because I went to a small Christian college in Tennessee that had a lot of rules. Uh, My dumb things typically involved pranks that got way out of hand and ended up involving the police. And so when I was a senior and just a few days away from graduation, a group of us decided that we wanted to pull one big prank, one last big prank. So we made a plan 
to steal the illustrious taxidermied buffalo that was hidden on our campus. We were the buffaloes, that was our mascot. And somehow the school ended up with a life-sized buffalo that was from the movie Dances with Wolves. It's not relevant to the story, I just wanted to share it with you all. <laughs> I don't know, it's, they hold on to that a lot down there. So around 2 a.m. on the night of the prank, we snuck in to the maintenance building where the buffalo was chained up. And once we got inside, our friend Josh used a lock pick set and actually picked the lock and freed the buffalo. And so running through the night, we carried it. We put it into a U-Haul trailer that we rented just so that we could do this prank. And we drove it to our president's house and left it on his doorstep with a note that had letters cut out from a magazine like we were criminals. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. The next morning, our president had to go out of town. So when he found the buffalo on his porch, he and his sons actually carried it inside and put it in his basement and didn't tell anyone. And so that morning, there were police everywhere on campus trying to figure out who stole the buffalo and where it went. And so we started to panic, right? They didn't know, we, they didn't know we took the buffalo, but we also didn't know where the buffalo was. We were literally graduating the next day, calling our parents saying, hey, we might not graduate the next day. And so what we did is we got everybody together and we had a conversation. We wanted to get our stories straight. And while we were doing that, our friend Josh is twitching, right? He's pouring sweat. He's just kind of shaking. He's not saying anything. And that's because he was dating the daughter of the staff member who ran the maintenance building where the buffalo was kept. It's the way we figured out that's where it was. And so we knew Josh was going to betray us and everybody knew it. And I feel like that's what this moment is like for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. And Jesus is like, hey, it's not me. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, it's definitely that guy. And so after the meal that they have together, Jesus and his disciples head to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. But Judas isn't with them. So at some point in the night, he sneaks out because it's time for the betrayal. The story continues. It says this. Then the traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged Signal, you will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Now, this is one of the most gut-wrenching moments in the Bible. Right? Jesus is betrayed with a kiss from a friend who he had just shared a meal with, who he'd spent three years of his life with. But Jesus welcomes the betrayal because he knows that this is how his story has to play out. Now, if you've ever been to church before, especially at Easter, this is where the Judas part of the story ends, right? right? This is where we veer off and we follow Jesus the rest of the way. And the story goes that Jesus is arrested. He is put on trial and condemned to die. He's beaten with a whip within an inch of his life. He is mocked spit on and berated by religious leaders and Roman soldiers and even a crowd who was watching. Then Jesus is forced to carry his own cross to a place called the skull where he's nailed to it and left to die. But what about Judas, right? What happens to Judas? This can't be how his story ends, right? Well, it's not. We tend to skip right over this, but I wanna keep reading. This is what it says about Judas. In Matthew 27, verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. Right? Oftentimes, if you've been to church, you think of Judas as a betrayer, but you forget there is this moment where he recognizes that he did something wrong. 
right? Judas watches as Jesus gets arrested and put on trial. He hears the death sentence given to him by Pontius Pilate that he will be put to death by crucifixion. Crucifixion, which comes from the word excruciating because it was the most painful and humiliating death imaginable. It was a death reserved for people that the Roman government deemed worthless, like someone who they thought was only worth 30 pieces of silver. When Judas realizes this, it says that he was filled with remorse. And we know that feeling, don't we? We get in a fight with our spouse and we say something out of our own insecurity and our own anger that we can't take back and we immediately feel it in the pit of our stomach. We set sexual boundaries while dating, but we let it go too far with our boyfriend or girlfriend and we feel that shame hang over us. We let our addiction take control and we watch watch as it crushes our family and our friends. We tell that lie to make ourselves look better even though it comes at the cost of our coworkers. Right? We know what it feels like to do something that we immediately regret and feel remorse. That's Judas. And the word remorse that's used here implies that Judas didn't just feel bad about what he had done. He actually repented of it. Repentance means to change the way we are thinking. Judas changes his mind. He knew he made a mistake. He knew he hurt someone he loved and someone who loved him. And so Judas wants a do-over. He wants a second chance. The story continues. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. He says, I have sinned, he declared, for I betrayed an innocent man. Right? Judas legitimately goes back to the religious leaders and confesses, I messed up. I, I made a mistake. I sinned. I need forgiveness. I did what, something that was wrong. Can you please fix this? Can you do something about this? What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Right? Sorry, not sorry, Judas. Right? It's your mistake. It's your sin. That's your thing to deal with. And so Judas, feeling like he has no other options, threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. Right? We don't usually talk about this part of this story at Easter, do we? Right? Judas was filled with remorse and shame for what he had done. The problem is that Judas believes the lie that so many of us do when it comes to Jesus. Right? He believes that Jesus won't forgive him. And we are just like Judas sometimes because we believe that same lie. Right? We believe the lie that Jesus won't forgive us, that we are too broken, that we are too sinful, that we are too messed up to be loved by Jesus. Right? Does that resonate with anyone? Because I know it does with me. So instead of standing in front of the Savior of the universe, Judas seeks out forgiveness from other people. He seeks out grace from other people. He seeks out restoration from other people. He seeks out peace from other people. And their response was, not my problem. And the thing is that when Judas realizes he messed up, he does everything right. He repents. Right? He changes his mind. He walks away from that life. He makes a decision to live differently. He seeks out a clean slate, but he went to people instead of Jesus. And here's what I know is true. If Judas had gone to Jesus instead of the religious leaders, Jesus would have given him the forgiveness he longed for. And his life and his story would have been completely different because Judas is not too sinful to be forgiven even after the betrayal. And the same is true for us. Right? So the lie that we believe is that Jesus won't forgive us, but here's the truth. You are never too sinful to be forgiven. 
You are not too broken, too dirty, too lost, too addicted, too angry, too doubtful, too far gone, too anything to be forgiven by Jesus and to experience the love he has for you. Right? You are not your mistakes. You are not unforgivable. And this is why Easter matters. Jesus came to live and die and resurrect for us. He came to live and die and resurrect for you. And you are not too broken to receive the forgiveness he died for. You are not too messed up to have a relationship with Christ. You are not too late to accept grace. Paul, one of the main people in the Bible, went from persecuting and killing Christians to experiencing Jesus' forgiveness. And he wrote this in Romans 5. He said, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. When we were at our most sinful moment, right, doing that thing we haven't told anyone about or we don't want anyone to know about, Jesus died for us because he loves us and wants nothing more than for us to be restored back to God. And the price that Jesus paid for our lives was his own, not 30 pieces of silver, but the ultimate price because Jesus believes you are that valuable. He believes that you are worth everything. And listen, I don't know what you are going through in your life, right? I don't know what you are going through right now. I don't know what sin you have in your life. I don't know what brokenness you have in your life. I don't know what pain you feel every single day. But I do know that Jesus wants you to have a life that is so much better than the one you are living right now. And the reason why we trust in this is because he died and overcame the grave, right? We know how this story plays out. Matthew 28, verse 1 says this. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Right? This is why we celebrate Easter. This is why we can have hope, even when things feel hopeless. Because Jesus made promises to us, and he backed them up by conquering death. Right? Jesus promised us that we could have new life. He promised us forgiveness. He promised us grace, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. He promised us love. He promised us that he would not abandon us. He promised us freedom. He promised us endless second chances. He promised us that it's not too late for broken, outcast, sinful people like us to experience eternity with God. And just like Judas, we have two choices on the table. We can seek out forgiveness and grace and life from this world and from people, which we know, we know, will always leave us wanting. Or we can experience forgiveness and grace and life through Jesus. But here's the catch, right? There's always a catch. It's on us to make the decision. 
right? We can either believe the lie that we can't be forgiven, or we can know that Jesus came to live and die and resurrect so we can have forgiveness and grace and a clean slate, right? And some of you are here, and that is what you are looking for, right? You showed up on Easter Sunday to a church hoping that there is something more that this world can offer you. You're seeking out newness. You're seeking out forgiveness, And if you are in that place and you are ready to choose that, right, to choose forgiveness, to choose grace, to choose faith in Jesus, to walk away from the lie that you've been believing for so long that says you can't be forgiven, you're too broken, here's your next step. We want you to check the baptism box in your digital connection card. You can head out the next steps. You can do it there as well. Because we want to talk to you this week about what does it look like to choose the life that Jesus has for you to choose forgiveness, to choose Jesus, not just on Easter, but every day. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate Rebecca as she gets baptized. And Rebecca has a story that I think a lot of us resonate with. There's this rock bottom moment when she realized that something had to change, right? Essentially, there's this feeling of remorse, this feeling of something's not right and I need to change. And so she walked away from a toxic relationship. She stopped drinking, and she began to pursue new life. And somewhere in that pursuit, she was invited to collective and began to hear a lot about this new life that Jesus offers and that the way we choose that new life, the way we celebrate that new life is through baptism. Baptism literally means to be immersed in water, and it symbolizes our own death, burial, and resurrection. Right? It's the death of our old selves. It's the death of our sin and the death of this brokenness that we carry with us. And it's the raising up of ourselves into new life. We become a new creation. It's a clean slate. And so that's what we're going to celebrate because that's what Rebecca wants. Right? And that's what Jesus came to give Rebecca. And that's what Jesus came to give all of us. May 11th, 1996 was one of the deadliest days in Mount Everest history as eight climbers tragically died while attempting to reach the summit. One of those climbers was a man named Andy Harris. As the story goes, there's a bottleneck at the Hillary Step, which is just a few hundred feet away from the summit. And so a group of guides decided to head back down to base camp four because the delays that they were hitting were going to force them to need more oxygen to survive. They're at too high of an altitude. But with worsening weather causing difficulties, descending climbers got stuck. A blizzard on the southwest face of Everest reduced visibility. It buried all the fixed ropes and the guides that would help them get back down. It obliterated the trail back to camp. And so the group radioed for help, knowing that they wouldn't make it through the night without more oxygen. And that's when Andy Harris, carrying supplementary oxygen and water, began climbing. He climbed alone to this group at the top of Hillary's Step in a full-scale blizzard. But it was just too much, and Harris quickly found himself in a struggle to survive. Harris began experiencing the effects of hypoxia, which is when your brain is deprived of oxygen, and it happens for so long that you begin to lose your memory and kind of slip into the state of delirium. In Harris's case, this hypoxia actually led him to believe that the oxygen tanks that he he was carrying weren't, weren't full, but they were empty. Andy Harris would die on Mount Everest due to lack of oxygen, when what he needed the most was all around him, was literally in his hands. Now here's the thing. What Judas needed the most was always right in front of him. And the same is true for us. The life we need, the forgiveness we need, the peace 
We need the joy. We need the hope we need is right here. And it's Jesus. He was seen, so our hope is real. He was seen, so his promises are true. He was seen, so we can trust him. And because Jesus resurrected from the dead, we can believe what he taught us. We can believe what he promised us. We can believe that God truly does love us. We can believe that although Saturday is the darkest day, resurrection is coming. We can believe that God will conquer death so that we can experience new life. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said he would. Let's pray. God, we long for new life. God, uh, we long for resurrection. We, we, we long for hope, and we long for peace. Um, and God, we know, like we know that this world is not offering it. But so many times we go back to people, we go back to this world seeking out the things that you promised us. And God, Easter is such an incredible reminder of the reason we believe that joy is real and love is real and grace is real isn't just because you talked about it. It isn't even just because you showed it. It's because you promised it, and then you died and resurrected from the dead, proving that you can be trusted. And so, God, as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate resurrection, as we celebrate in your life, God, I pray that it's not just today that we celebrate those things. God, that we recognize that it's something that we can experience in our own life every single day if we choose you. God, every day we're faced with these choices between you and people, between you and culture, between you and ourselves, between you and these lies that we believe. And God, I pray today is the beginning where we stop believing in those other things and just fully commit to you. God, we lean into you and the grace that you offer and the new life that you offer. God, thank you so much for sending your son to live a perfect life, to be betrayed by a friend, to be beaten and mocked and put up on a cross and buried in a tomb just so he can resurrect so that we could experience forgiveness and we could experience closeness to you. God, the truth is we know that we don't deserve this. God, that we are broken, messed up, outcast people, but we're so thankful that you loved us anyways. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for love. Thank you for new life. Thank you for resurrection. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.